Doug Keck, and this is EWTN's Bookmark. Our guest author is Father Robert Nixon, OSB, the Tan Resurrection Book Series, published by Tan, and naturally available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, for all things Catholic. Welcome, Father Robert. Thank you very much, Doug. EWTN's bookmark. And uh, those people will notice that though you're here in our studio is in Irondale, that's, that might be a southern accent, but it may be from southern Australia. Where, where is it? That, that's right. In fact, from, from, from northern Australia, okay. north Queensland, from a monastery in western Australia, okay. uh, New Norcia Abbey, just outside of Perth. So what brings you here? People saw you on with, with Father Mitch back at the end of last year. Uh, talking about these series of books as well. How did you get into translating books? Well, one of my great loves is the writings of the saints and the doctors of the church and our great predecessors in religious life. And I realized that so many of these books haven't been translated yet into English, so they're not available for modern readership. And uh, I was very blessed to love the Latin language as well and to love translating. Right. So it all seemed to come together that this was something God was calling me to, to translating this new series of books in cooperation with Tan Books to present these classic and inspiring works of the saints, of the writers of old, mm -hmm. to share this ancient wisdom with the contemporary now, readership. You've got, you've got a musical background as well, right? I, I do indeed, Doug. So before I entered monastic life, I was a, a concert pianist and a composer. Mm -hmm and very blessed as a monk to be able to continue that as part of my ministry of, of bringing the truth and beauty of God to people through music. So you see a connection between the, the beauty of music and the beauty of the written word? I do very much so. So the written word uh, in the final analysis is actually a form of music mm -hmm. and music also is a form of speech. Mm -hmm. So I see these two as being intrinsically related, that the, the meaning of language can't be separated from its sonority. Now let's go through the uh, the various books here, and and I guess with the Resurrection series, in a sense, you're taking little-known works uh, and and translating them into English so people can now appreciate them in this century, right? Indeed, indeed. So there are so many absolutely fantastic works that haven't been translated into English, and only a very very tiny fraction of the works written in Latin. Mm -hmm. which of course is the native language of the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. have actually been made available in English. So the first one here, let's go, the, uh, the Tale of Death and Glory, the Acts of St. Sebastian and His Companions, St. Ambrose of Milan, and it's got you right in the beginning here, Father Robert Nixon, OSB translated. Why did you decide to translate this particular work? And we'll talk about how you decided on each one of these. This is an absolutely fantastic work. It tells the story of the martyr, St. Sebastian, who was, as most people know, the great incident in his death was when he was shot by innumerable arrows. Right. It contains also the story of about 20 other martyrs, and it reads like a very exciting work, almost like an adventure novel. And I knew when I read this work that it had to be shared with contemporary readers, and what's more, written by Ambrose of Milan, who was one of the greatest authors one of the greatest rhetoricians and masters of the Latin language of all time. It's interesting you, st you talk about the, the story of San Sebastian and his companions, a work of considerable sophistication, serves not only to relate and record actions of heroic sanctity, but also to convey a message of fidelity and courage. Go on to say the form of Christianity portrayed in the work is distinctly Roman. How so? Yeah, so um, when Christianity emerged, 
it found that it shared a lot of the values uh, and moral attitudes of Roman Stoicism, which in a certain sense uh, anticipated a lot of these. So there was mm -hmm. a very strong emphasis on self-discipline, courage, mm -hmm. fidelity, what we might call masculine virtues. Mm -hmm. And this is something which comes through very strongly in the writings of, of St. Ambrose and in the stories of these martyrs. And St. Sebastian himself was a great military commander. Oh, okay. And he's a, one of the saints, uh, one of the patron yes, saints. Yes, he was, of, he was of in the military, right? Indeed. And he suffered under Diocletian, right? Under Diocletian, uh, yes. And he had, in fact, been a good friend of Diocletian until uh, this happened, right. until his Christian faith was revealed. And uh, so there's this element of a complex human relationship in there as well, in the events which led up to his death. And like you said, bravery, you say, today those who are loyal to the Catholic face, face many serious adversities, both overt and covert, from governments and authorities. The latter often strive to impose values which are contrary to Christ and his church's teachings. And you talk about, and relating to Diocletian and, and Maximian um, back in that day, but what you're saying is, in many ways, we're seeing the same thing today, whether it be in Australia, United States, or other parts of the world, right? Very much so, very much so. I think persecution of Christian values has reached an almost unprecedented height that uh, a lot of religious people need, feel the need to be very careful about the opinions they express and so forth. Um, so I think we're seeing a, a new wave of persecution of Christians and in particular of Catholics. And in the face of this, we all need to show this fidelity right. and courage, which was so wonderfully exemplified by St. Sebastian. Well, what I thought was interesting, the title here, The Tale of Death and Glory, is that your title? Uh, that, is, that is my title. Okay, because putting those two together is not what a lot of people see. Uh, glory and death don't go together anymore. No, they don't. They've become kind of polar opposites. But if we think about the story of Christ himself, it was through his heroic and brave death that his glory, his divine glory, and the, the, the immense power, the insuperable power of his love was finally right. revealed. Okay, let's quickly move on to the crown of the Virgin, an ancient meditation on Mary's beauty, virtue, and sanctity. Now I'll let you pronounce the name of the saint here of Toledo. Saint Ildefonsus. Okay. And we have a Saint Ildefonsus College at our monastery, and that was what inspired me to check out his writings. And this is a, a fascinating work in which he fashions this crown um, containing various jewels, flowers, and stars as a way of meditating and depicting the virtues and the beauty of the Most Holy Mother of God. Now, you talk about here that the little book of the Crown of the Virgin, it, in the author, imaginally fashions that crown. And you go on also to say that apparently a uh, well-known tradition relates that the Virgin Mary herself may have appeared to him. That's right. So he was one of the very strong proponents of the doctrine of the perpetual virginity in Spain mm. and uh, of Marian devotion in general. And it's related that one day uh, the Virgin Mary appeared to him and presented him with a white chasuble and asked him henceforth to wear this whenever he was celebrating Mass in her honor. And, and I see the use of the word corona. Corona. Yeah, so which, which basically means crown. Right. Okay. Yeah. You say, as in any translation, the rendering given here is necessarily a compromise between fidelity to the original and the demands of idiomatic English. What would be an example of that? 
So, for example, in Latin you could have numerous words which are more or less um, synonyms for beautiful. Pulchra, formosa, speciosa, and so forth. And in translating that into, into English, you think, well, we've got beautiful, lovely, gorgeous, you probably wouldn't want to use in a religious context. Right, but to select the word, the synonym, and why well, characteristic of this work is he, he strings words together, Latin words together, right. So it's not just a matter of matching it with the English word, it's a matter of judiciously and hopefully artistically selecting the appropriate to English word. To capture the whole thought. To capture, to capture the thought and, right, and the sonority and the style. Yeah, rather than just a literal translation indeed, of the actual indeed. words. You say, in a sincere hope and prayer for this present translator, that's you, just as it was for the original author, that this work may serve to promote love and devotion of the glories and the Blessed Virgin Mary, who remains now as always our life, our sweetness, and our hope. Do you have a strong devotion to Our Lady? Very much so. This is, is one of the uh, most strong devotions which I feel, and so many Catholics feel, that she is the one who made the Incarnation possible. She exemplifies every possible virtue, every possible human merit to its highest degree, and she never fails to hear our prayers with an ear of infinite compassion. Okay, moving on, the glories of heaven, the supernatural gifts that await body and soul in paradise. And this is from St. Anselm of Canterbury. What attracted you to this? Well, St. Anselm of Canterbury is one of the great doctors of the church, and he's also a very great Benedictine monk. So okay. we have a particular so devotion to him right. okay. within our order. And this is one of his writings which uh, until now has remained completely unknown. Mm -hmm. So it's a conference which he gave to a group of monks at a, at a big monastery in Europe. And in it he describes the beauties, the joys, the wonders of the celestial kingdom. Mm -hmm. Really with the idea of firing up in their souls this yearning for the joys of eternity, which is so central to our Christian faith and, and I think needs to be central. To right, our he life lived between 1033 and 1109, so yeah. you're talking about. You say, Anselm describes systematically various aspects of the happiness of heaven. The spirit, you go on to say, the spiritual value of the contemplation of the glories of heaven perhaps tends to be overlooked by many contemporary Christians. Yeah, I mean, most people think that heaven's boring. Well, yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, heaven and hell are things which often tend to fall off the radar in people's people's thoughts. But if you think about it, these are eternal realities. This is what is waiting for each and every one of us. So in this context, I think it, it deeply behooves us all, Doug, to, to think about it very seriously. And if it's boring, no, it's not boring. Um, I think we might get too, too trapped up in trying to imagine mm -hmm. the eternal with our, with our time-bound minds. Right. Well, you talk about this uh, being dealing with spirituality, which is radically eschatological. How so? Uh, so, eschatological in the right. sense that it's focusing upon the last things, upon mm. the final end of our life and about what happens beyond that final end, Doug. Right. And it's so important when we think about the brief duration of our life and the incomprehensible immensity of mm. eternity that we really need to be thinking about the last things. You know, it's like a life is like a journey and when you're on a journey, you're thinking about where you're going, aren't you? And so, uh, you know, it's, it's like that, that we need to re-embrace this eschatological dimension of our faith. You also use that terrible word judgment here uh, in, in there as well, the day of judgment. People don't like to think about that part. No, no, well, <laughs> and um, when we read the Gospels, we find that 
Christ actually talks about the day of judgment a lot, right. a lot more than most modern priests would dare to. Right. And it's a serious matter um, to remember that everything which we do, we will need to account for. The right. mercy of God is infinite, but the justice of God is also infinite. Right, absolutely. Next up, the Passion of Christ, not the movie, uh, Through the Eyes of Mary, also St. Anselm of Canterbury. So the Marian connection here, you have an attraction yeah. to Mary, obviously. Why this particular piece? So uh, St. Anselm had a very strong devotion to uh, our Blessed Mother. Um, so this work, this is a collection of works. It mm -hmm. contains a, a dialogue between St. Anselm and the Blessed Virgin, as well as a dialogue between St. Bernard of Clairvaux and the Blessed Virgin. And in these, she describes the events of the Passion, what was leading okay. up to it, her own feelings, her own experiences. So these are very deeply moving works written in the um, late Middle Ages. We're right. not completely certain about the authorial attributions. Okay. Uh, but they use these two saints as, as the, the point for their, uh, these devotional meditations, which I think are extremely moving. And the Passion of Christ and the Virgin Mary sharing in this indescribable agony is something which is, which is so important and should touch the heart of every single mortal being. Well, you make the point in the Middle Ages from about the 11th century onward, there was a renewed and intense focus on the sufferings of and death of Christ. So had that been lost for a period of time? Uh, to a certain extent, it had been uh, maybe played down a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. And I mentioned before we talked about the Stoic or the Roman influence. Right. If we look at the early depictions of Christ, even on the cross, he is a very very much a figure who is in charge, who mm -hmm. he might be suffering, but you know, um, he's taking it all pretty calmly. And, right. and most importantly, he's depicted as a heroic, as a triumphant figure. In the late Middle Ages, people began to reflect uh, on him, not forgetting that he was a heroic and triumphant figure, but also remembering that his sufferings were very real, very human that the tears which he shed, that the blood mm. which poured out from his flesh was real tears and real human blood. And was that because people living at that time could relate to that idea the, of suffering very, in their own very, lives? Very much so. So um, the late Middle Ages became a period of tremendous suffering, widespread famine, widespread plague, mm -hmm. um, and, and suffering was the daily reality right. of life for so many people. You also refer to this in some way as devotional creative writing. Yeah. So, Doug, what that means is that we shouldn't necessarily take it as revelation. So mm. if, if we find something described in a certain way here or Mary's thoughts or words or feelings, it's, it, of course, doesn't have the status of canonical scripture. This is what, what occurred to one person. Even if they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, it, it can't be necessarily accepted as historical truth. On the other hand, mm. we, we can't be sure at which point the, uh, the devotional imagination mm. and the divine revelation begin and end. The third text here you, you refer to is called Our Lady's Lament. Unlike other works included here, the track was originally composed in Middle English. Why do you point that out? Well, the other works I'm translating from Latin. Mm. This is translating from Middle English, oh, okay. by, written probably by a Benedictine monk called John Lydgate. 
and um, so it's a, a different style, a different approach. Now, did you translate it from Middle English, or I, did, did you have a Latin version you translated? No, I, I translated it from Middle English, okay. which is only half translating because more than 50% of the words are actually basically the same as our now was, English the, was the Canterbury Tales done in Middle it, it English? Was, it was. That's, that's the other one. So if you read that, you get an idea of kind of the Germanic yeah. influences in the Ve language at the time. Ve very much so, yeah. Okay, let's move on from the Passion of Christ to humility and the elevation of the mind to God uh, and accredited here to Thomas Akempis, who's well known for what? He is well known, Doug, for the imitation of Christ, which, um, which is one of the most widely and most deeply beloved works mm -hmm. in all of our religious literature. It's not often known, Doug, though, that Thomas Akempis actually wrote a, a vast amount of works apart from this imitation of Christ. Right, right. And uh, a, a number of them have been translated into English, but this one, Humility, right. as well as uh, another short work entitled The Elevation of the Mind to God, had remained overlooked. So it was a, a, a great privilege and pleasure to be able to bring these works, yeah. these unknown works of Thomas Akempis. Who's John Morehouse? John Warhouse was uh, an editor at Tan Books, and uh, it was he who first showed interest in my in my translation and very strongly encouraged me in this work. And very sadly, he he passed away. That's why uh, the dedication. Why I've chosen Tan. to dedicate this work to him. He he, esp he especially loved this work and encouraged me to to complete it. And just before I completed it, uh, sadly, uh, he was was called from this life. Now you say this volume represents for the first time in English three short but wonderful spiritual works of this great author, humility, the elevation of mind of God, a collection of devout prayers. You say other aspects of the author's personality are also exhibited. For example, in the elevation of the mind of God, the reader encounters passionate and mystical yearning for God who is utterly transcendent and eternal. At the same time, there's some question of whether Thomas Akempis is even the author of The Imitation of Christ. Are there uh, questions about this as well? Uh, yeah, well, uh, Doug, it would probably be fair to say that the majority of the works written more than 500 years ago have a certain amount of uncertainty I about see. their authorship. Now, with the imitation of Christ, it was originally the manuscripts show it as an anonymous work, which was the intention of the author. Mm -hmm. Some early editions publish it with different authors listed. So, uh, but the consensus of scholars today is that in fact it does, it was written by Thomas Akempis. Now you say included in this volume is also an early biography that, of Thomas written in 1597 by the important Jesuit scholar Herbert Roswed. Uh, and uh, what insights did you get from that? Well, you know, I, I knew that known the uh, imitation of Christ very well, but I didn't know all that much about the person of Thomas Akempis. And from that I, I learned his, his great humility, um, his enormous intellectual gifts, his devotion. He copied out the Bible uh, four times by hand mm -hmm. and dedicated himself very seriously to his ministry of writing. But it was so humble that he repeatedly refused leadership roles in the church, prepared, preferred to live the humble life of, of, a, of a monk and canon. Hence humility. Indeed, and yes. humility was something which he lived, which he exemplified in his life wonderfully, as well as explaining so powerfully in his writing. And wrapping up, you've got the Meditations on the Holy Angels by St. Aloysius Gonzaga. Uh, and of course, there's a famous university in the United States, Gonzaga, my good friend. Father Spitzer used to be the 
president of it one time or another. Uh, the thing that surprised me about him, I didn't realize he was so young when he died. Yeah, so uh, St. Aloysius Gonzaga is the patron saint of youth and students, um, which is why there's such a wide devotion. But he, was, he, was in, uh, he became a Jesuit at a fairly young age and he served victims of the plague in a hospital. And as a consequence of this mm -hmm. and of his, his life of, of very strict devotion, he met an early end at the young age of right. 23. So he focused on angels uh, as exemplars and protectors. Uh, do we not see them that way today, or is it a little too new agey the way we see angels yeah. many times? Um, so Doug, I think um, we still see them in that way, but perhaps within mainstream culture, Catholic culture, there's a, a tendency to play them down a little bit because mm. of their popularity within the new age type of scene and to think, well, right. we, we don't need to think about it so much. But he calls to mind very powerfully all the, the traditions of the angels, their roles in our daily life, you know, and if we think right. about, we've each got this guardian angel who's continually watching over us, then it, it's something we, right. which we, we should be thankful for. It's also interesting because of his youth, the fact that this indeed, the, the, the piece you have here is considered a quote-unquote student work and sometimes unpolished in its literary mm. style, wandering or diffuse. So did you fix that or did you just translate that? You know, um, in, in this case, I, I just translated it mm. because I think that's actually part of the charm of the work. To realize that this is a work written by someone who's actually still hard at work on his studies for the priesthood. He was never actually ordained. Um, and he was a, a, a great scholar. He was good friends with uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, with St. Charles Borromeo, and they also saw him as a, a future pope. Mm -hmm. um, but he had this tremendous devotion to the angels, and he wrote this work, which is almost an overflowing of the feelings of his heart and mind. And I thought in translating it, I could maybe edit it a little bit, make it mm. more coherent, shorten some of the parts. And, but no, I thought it's important to, right. to, because the work provides an insight into his own personality, as it, well as the role of the holy angels. And there's two uh, versions of the life of Saint yeah. Aloysius as well here. He's kind of described as being angelic himself. Yes, this was a, an outstanding feature about him, which virtually everyone who met him met. There was this remarkable innocence mm -hmm. um, an almost otherworldly character about him in his detachment, in his humility, in his great love for God. Mm -hmm. He was from the Gonzaga family, was like one of the royal families of, of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and he chose to turn his back on all of this and to enter the Jesuit right. order and lived an extremely austere life, devoting himself to, to fasting, to prayer, to vigils. Um, so much so that he, I think, reached a perfection of innocence at a young age mm -hmm. and that God took him, knew that he was ready for heaven at that point. Now, from putting these together, how long did it take you in total to translate all of these, these six books? I guess I've been working on them now for maybe about three years, mm -hmm. Doug. So um, when I do a translation, I firstly do a literal translation and then revisit it after a period of time and then revisit it again. So it's a, it's a process of constantly polishing, trying to, to make the most authentic and most effective realization of the sense and the character and the tone of the original work. Was it easier for you to do the Latin translation than the Middle English? 
In some ways it was. Mm -hmm. So one of the big challenges in doing Latin translations is in Latin they tend to write very, very long sentences. Often mm -hmm. a sentence will take up a whole page. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Middle English they go to the opposite extremes. They tend to write very short sentences. And um, so in some ways it was more challenging to, to, tra to transform it into flowing mm -hmm. contemporary English, which is al always my uh, endeavor, Doug. Uh, there's six books here. Which is your favorite? I would say my favorite is The Crown of the Virgin. Mm -hmm. And this is a work which overflows with love for the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, with veneration for the Holy Queen of Heaven. And it's a work which you can just read one chapter of as a prayer uh, at night, and um, it never fails to touch me. Uh, right. And uh, even though it's my own translation, I, I generally read it back in the Latin. And uh, it's, it's one of my, could be, could, I feel almost as if it's my own prayer right. written by someone else. Just before we go, are, are you did, planning on doing some more work like yeah, this? Absolutely. So we have a, a bunch of works anticipated to come out in the near future. So we've got a work by St. Albert the Great on mm -hmm. the virtues. We've got an interesting work by Cardinal Richelieu, oh, wow. former Prime Minister of France. I thought he was a bad guy. Well, he's sometimes portrayed <laughs> as a bad guy, but actually he was a very holy man and really tried to promote the unity of, of France and the unity of the Catholic Church. Okay. Um, and a, a few others on their way as well, Doug. So it's a very exciting project, this Tan right. Resurrection series. So, so this is just the first of very many. Well, thank you so much for your hard work. It's a pleasure for bringing forward the, the jewels and the riches of the church. Father Robert Nixon, OSB, the Tan Resurrection Book Series, published by Tan, available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. Check them out. I'm Doug Keck. Join us next time right here on Bookmark. Thanks.